Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Have the passage on the insert in your bulletin as well. Before I read that passage, a few introductory short passages set the stage for this announcement of the Messiah King. Uh, we've advanced uh, rather, rather rapidly from Jesus' childhood. Now it picks up again, and he is an adult and ready to enter into public ministry. Uh, but for centuries before this event, uh, the forecasting of the Messiah's coming was throughout the Old Testament. But in particular, even the specifics of this passage were starting to unfold in God's plans. 860 B.C., before the time of Christ, God raised up the prophet Elijah. And it says in 2 Kings, in description of Elijah, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said it is Elijah Elijah the Tishbite. 160 years after Elijah, the prophet Isaiah was raised up by God, and he wrote, forecasting, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway of our God. That's 700 BC in that messianic prophecy in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. Then 300 years after Isaiah, but still 400 years after before Christ came, the last of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. After Malachi, there was a 400-year period of prophetic silence. Much had been forecasted, but now 400 years as the people of God waited and wondered. And then we come to this event Here in God's holy word. Please hear as I read Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers!' Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, as we continue to study the gospel of Matthew and we come to the person, the message of John the Baptist, please give us aid in understanding and applying what we read. Thank you for the clarity of the message of repentance and faith in Christ. Refresh us by your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Tuesday, my son and I went to a concert downtown. It's a band that I've been following for some years now. Uh, They became known on YouTube. They don't have professional management, and their website's not the best. They started by playing in the subways of New York City. The name of the band is Too Many Zoos. Now, when you ask them what their genre of music is, it's interesting, their description. Mind you, it's a bass drum player who wears it over his shoulder like you'd see in a band with all sorts of contraptions over the top that he plays as they're playing. It's mobile. It's because they play mostly in subway tunnels. The other main player is a trumpet player, and then there is a baritone sax player. The baritone sax player is so active during the show, he wears you out watching him move around. He said once in an interview that he had to take up cardio training to do his performances, carrying this berry sacks and then moving like he does for an hour straight. I knew they'd be exciting to watch, uh, but they describe their genre of music as a mix of jazz, Afro-Cuban rhythms, funk, electronic dance music, and house music. So you could see why I could not convince my wife to go. So this was something my son, he, he comes along, he's a good sport, I, go to all, I have an eclectic taste, and he'll come with me anytime as long as I buy the tickets. So there we were, waiting for this band to show up. It's in a small club. The club fits about 200 people. There were more than 200 people in there. So they are well known in this viral way. And so it was interesting. There was a, you know, an energy waiting for them to come. Everybody knows how energetic they are. But before he comes out, there's an opening act. And you've all been to concerts before where there's an opening act. The opening act has a real purpose. It's not just to kill time. And this man was a very talented guitarist. He's kind of a jazz rock guitarist who had a synthesizing machine. He'd play a little, record a little, start playing it, play some more. Very, very interesting. I mean, he caught everybody's attention. He drew everybody's attention in. And throughout his set, he would mention, hey, are you all ready for too many zoos? And he'd purposely get people thinking about what was coming next. And I thought to myself how difficult it is to be an opening act. Um, Every musician like this would probably want to have their own career, if you will. Maybe that's what they're vying for. But that role, the opening act role, that was important for the concert. Uh, They have to be good enough for people to give them attention, but they can't be better than the act that follows. Uh, To do their thing, they keep pointing you forward to the act that you're waiting for. Uh, They're purposely not as good as the main act. Even if they were as good, they won't act like it when they're playing. When we think of the opening act, we are drawn to the role that John the Baptist had for the coming or the announcing of the Messiah King. John was the opening person, the opening forerunner, the herald for the greatest fulfillment of all prophecies of all time. After millennia of prophecy and preparation in God's providence, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, had arrived. But one such Messiah deserves an introduction of biblical prophetic proportions. Enter John the Baptist, and he does not disappoint on this level. You have in this 
steady, complacent period in the life of the people of Israel. Comfortable with their status in life. The religious leaders don't want too much, sh- too much shuffling the boat. They liked their status. Sure, they wanted to rise higher within Rome, but they liked it through political means. They liked it through social means. Their lives had some comfort to it. And it says in the first verse of our passage, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The prophetic schools all came from the wilderness, preaching to the masses outside the cities. And then as the masses learned the message of whatever God's word was for them, it's normally repent, and it bubbles and brews until it makes its way into the the centers of the cities. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first words of his public ministry. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. The king is here. He's announcing the, the king. And you're looking, where is the king? He's opening now. He's getting us ready for the king. He's getting the people ready for the king. In his outfit, verse 4, he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now that's strange to us, and it would have been strange to them too, but they would have known, every Jewish listener would have known, that is the uniform of the prophet. And in particular, the prophet Elijah. So as the opener, he is stirring up the masses to be ready for what is coming. Then, he doesn't just stop with his general teaching. In verse 7, when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said to them, you deceitful, lying snakes. How's that for an opening act? That's what he does. That's what he says to them. You ought to bear fruit in bearing with repentance. They knew his message was one of repentance. That's the general message of the prophets, from Noah to Elijah, now to him. But they certainly weren't repenting and turning to Christ, turning to God. So bear fruit with this repentance I preach is what this herald says in getting everyone ready for the arrival of the Messiah King. He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. I have a symbolic baptism. That means something for sure. But he who is coming after me, now he's getting us ready for for the real deal, if you will. He's mightier than I, verse 11, whose sandals I can't even, I shouldn't even carry them. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Whoa. Water baptism had been done across the board for various reasons. It was new what John was doing with it, tying it to repentance. But he's saying all that's nothing compared to what the one who comes after me will do because he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit of God. What an opener. You can't beat this as an opening to the coming of the Messiah King. And by his ministry, not only does he give a message that we should follow and see as it's consistent in scripture, but he also gives a picture, I think, to all proclaimers of the gospel for all generations. I'm not saying John the Baptist is in himself a model for local church pastors, but I am saying his preaching model, his convictions about the message he's proclaiming, understanding his role, all these things provide a timeless, timeless sense about what this office should provide. John's time frame and his garb, they may be bygone. But his mindset and his approach, they are ageless. And I think the modern church could use a real dose of John the Baptist. In fact, when I talk to seminary students or I have opportunity to talk with other ministers, I often return, return to the ministry of John the Baptist to encourage us 
to remind us of some things maybe we lose along the way as we are about ministry. I think we're in a day of incredibly weak preaching, uh, trying to scratch the itch of the listener's ears rather than be faithful mouthpieces for God. In a day where so much preaching is impotent, I think John the Baptist provides a timeless model for preachers to emulate. Yes, I might be speaking in that way towards preachers, if you will, but you can see these principles applying to every believer as we consider the truth that God has given us. Let's look at it through this lens, though. John is this model preacher. His message and also the conviction that he brings that message with. First, I think if you look at John, you can see um, how he knows his role. The preacher must heed his role, must understand his place. He's an opener at best. I don't really remember that opener I just mentioned except for I'd use that illustration. That's a good opening act. He's a herald of the one who's going to come. He's a servant of the one to come. He must be very careful to make clear that everyone sees what his role is. Verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He started where he was in that prophetic place, the wilderness. It's symbolic of the prophet's school. And he preaches to whoever will listen. And he's a mouthpiece. He speaks, he proclaims. In its rudest form, that's what preaching means, is to proclaim, to herald. That's, that's our role, to herald. It says, in those days he came preaching in the wilderness, and then it gives us the essence of his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's heralding something outside of himself. It's the kingdom of heaven that he's come to herald. It's not his kingdom, his domain, his ministry. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Referring now to the arrival of Christ himself. The king is here. He's intruded into this kingdom of man that has been walking under the guidelines and guidance of Satan himself and now repent because the kingdom of heaven has come. He knows his role. It's to deliver a simple word. And he occupies an ancient role that really has remained the same. This reference to Isaiah 40, verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah speaking or forecasting the person of John. What is John? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's a voice. That's what he is. Heed your role. You're a voice. And your job is to prepare the way of the Lord. Make his pastor. Proclaim the message of repentance, the turning from sins, which make us go only one place when we do that, to Christ. And that's the role of the preacher. A mere voice. The preacher is not the message, nor should he get in the way of the message, as we see exemplified by John the Baptist. Heed your role. One job, declare the word of the Lord, not your word. He came preaching. It didn't say he came developing nifty sermons. He came developing four ways to do this or four ways to do that. Or this. Now, the Bible addresses all manners of our life. I'm not saying that there won't be messages like that, but... Preaching means you're proclaiming something you've been given to preach, and it's straightforward. It's preaching the word is not always identical with preaching a sermon. Preaching the word means you gave the word as it was intended with its application exemplified for the people. To, it's, this is God's word. This is what it says. This is what we ought to do. 
It's very simple, and we ought to heed our role, first and foremost, that this should describe the minister, ministry of the preacher. He knew his role so clearly, it's seen in verse 11. By the way, if you're listening to me, he says, he who's coming after me, no one's coming after me, is mightier than I am. He can't even carry his sandals. Later, John records in his gospel, the, John the Baptist saying, he must increase, I must decrease. That's the preacher's job. Here, John the Baptist, the forecasted forerunner of the Christ, the herald for the coming Christ. All we preachers could use a dose of humility about our calling. We are mere heralds. We are mere voices. God doesn't need any of us. If I fell over right in here, she'd carry me out and someone else called by God should say what God says. We are not Christ, nor should we seek to be seen as such. John sets the pace for this. The first real preacher in the New Testament tells us our place. Michael Green says so well about John the Baptist. He lived a simple lifestyle which powerfully challenged the religious leaders of the day who lived in considerable luxury. His message shook the state. His courage was phenomenal. And yet with striking humility, he sees himself as nothing more or less than a voice through which God was addressing his people. He takes no credit for his ministry. He is simply his master's voice. What an example for preachers, Green says. Now, I think you'll notice some other features of John's example. You see, he demonstrates how the preacher must know and trust God's word. The courage he had came from believing what he was saying was true and from God. Um, The content of his message, he believed to be from God. So this gives him the boldness necessary to be faithful. Uh, He believes it himself. He didn't say something he doesn't believe. John was acting on knowledge that had been given to him through the word of God and, of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He understood that he had a prophetic role in some fashion how the Scripture spoke of him. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. The preaching didn't come out of a vacuum. He was raised in a home that looked forward to Messiah, raised in a priest's home. He knew the truths of the word, and he was himself convicted by what it said, that we all need to repent. We are sinners. And we need salvation. That's the heart and soul of what drives us to the right place. In fact, this is not a new message. Noah preached a gospel of repentance. Elijah, who John fulfills, preached a message of repentance to Ahab and Jezebel in his day. Now, the ministry of the prophets in general would be repent Israel, turn back to Yahweh, and John fulfills us all in what he teaches. He knew the message of the gospel of repentance, and he brought it. He believed it. He grew up believing it. He knew the prophecies about Messiah and knew what Christ had come to do. He says he knows, we know that he understands the mission of Messiah. Look at verse 12, describing what the work of Messiah will be like. His winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What a vivid depiction of what the Messiah will do, in part. It's not all the Messiah does, but this is what they need to hear. These come with judgment. Just like the farmer will get all the picked grain on the threshing floor and get a winnowing fork and throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff to a place where it would be collected and burned. That's, he's going he's gonna to thin things out. He's going to bring out who's true and who's not. This would awaken anybody who was complacent, thinking, hey, I'm a Jewish person, I'm okay. John knew 
God's word and his promise, and he understood God's visitation as it was forecasted. John's confidence and boldness is fueled by his trust in God's word. This must be true of anyone who takes up teaching or preaching the word of God. Uh, Preachers and teachers need to lead the way in their view and their belief in Scripture. We have to be careful to demonstrate a very skillful and respectful handling of the Scriptures because it is God's Word. We have to have a high view of the Bible. It's our role to steward this divine message. I think many modern preachers have lost faith in the Scriptures as they spend so much energy trying to apologize for it all the time. They try to contort things to fit the acceptance of a given audience. They try to cut things out or skip over high ma- hard matters. To be clear here, based on the model you have here of John and of Jesus and of the preachers in the Scriptures, no one, no one who doubts the divine inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of God's Word should be anywhere near a pulpit. Such a preacher is worse than useless. They bring doubt and condemnation on themselves and on the sheep for whom Christ died. They bring nothing but judge, potential but judgment. Verse 7, it says, when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, based on his understanding of the message of salvation, he knew that they were preaching something different. They were preaching a works righteousness. They were preaching that as long as you're Jewish, you're all right, or follow our rules and our lead, you're okay. It's about who your lineage is. It's about who your parents are. It's about your association with the temple or part of um, giving to this temple. All these things he knew they did not understand, or they were contorting purposely the message of Scripture. And he called them a brood of vipers for doing so. There's some more that we can see from John's example. John really, in many respects, might be considered the epitome of how a preacher should not care about popularity. It should be the same message. Whatever the message is that God gives, it should be the same regardless of who's following and how they're reacting. He doesn't care what people think of him. Uh, His message was unpopular, no doubt. Repent. As soon as you say repent... You're declaring everyone to be a sinner in need of turning from that sin. That is not a popular message on the large. It's inherently unpopular to go around saying repent. Who are you to tell me to repent would be the the self-righteous attitude most would have at initial hearing. But nevertheless, he has to give this message even if people walk away from it. Sure, there are times where people will follow. They were initially pretty interested in what he was doing. The masses were coming. But that could ebb and flow. The the preacher can never be concerned with how many people come to hear or who sticks around after hearing it. That's, we could see that in spades with the person of John. He preached God's message regardless of the reaction he got for doing so. Also, you could just tell by his appearance he didn't care. Um, he had the, the prophet's garb, which did not put him in a popular state. That was not popular among the Israelites of old, and it wouldn't be now. He didn't wear the usual clothes of the itinerant preachers and Greco-Roman philosophers. He did not care about that. He didn't wear the luxurious robes of the temple priests. He didn't wear the ornaments of the scribes and the Pharisees or carry around copies of all his degrees. It says in verse 4, he came wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. Didn't even sit down and eat with people half the time, it seems. Then, 
Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region were going out to him. There's no doubt he got a response, and there were times that he didn't. It ended up getting him killed eventually. He was not influenced by the popularity that came with bringing the message or the infamy that might have come as well. He did not adapt his person or his message to be acceptable to people. His job was to proclaim the message that would set people free, not to alter his message so that most people would keep listening and keep attending. I think too much popularity in this day and age may be a sign that we're giving too much of what people want rather than what they need. There's kind of a scourge in Western Christianity called celebrity Christianity or celebrity pastors, if you will. You see it all over the United States. Ben Kakaris says this in analyzing this phenomena. The surge in the number of celebrity pastors is a growing concern for the church. Multiple documentaries, articles, and podcasts have exposed this problem. Indeed, right now in Kansas City, there's a massive, massive scandal about just this kind of a thing. Celebrity pastor. Further, he says, and with so many high-profile pastors disqualifying themselves, one naturally wonders how much of their downfall was connected to the celebrity status that had become part of their identity. I think what he means is, it's true, any pastor, any of us, myself included, we could fall into sin and disqualify ourselves. But the pressure of pursuing popularity in the ministry only exponentially puts the pressure on in the likelihood of that happening. Finally, this Kakaris says, the terms Christian and celebrity have not meshed well historically. Over time, popularity has taken out more pastors than persecution. John Bunyan, he was kind of a celebrity pastor in his day, if you could imagine. He was popular and growing in popularity, especially after Pilgrim's Progress was so known, early 17th century preacher. He understood the deceitfulness of popularity. Spurgeon loves to tell this story. Once a friend complimented Bunyan after a sermon. Man, you have preached an admirable sermon, my brother. Ah, Bunyan answered him, you're too late. The devil told me that before I got down from the pulpit stairs. We see more from John's example. John exemplifies how the preacher must communicate God's word clearly. Uh, What I mean by this is there are many complexities about doctrine and theology, and we should pursue them. I think we try our best at this church to give every level of of study that you can have. But at the basic level, the, the, the level that crosses the church the most commonly, there is a very plain meaning in the Bible that should not be contorted or made harder than it is to understand. The Lord did not make his central message of our need for a Savior hard to understand. So I say to preachers in this light, if you were preachers, preachers, don't make this complicated. This is not complicated. We are not right with God because of sin. We have to turn from that sin to the only place that will give us salvation. That's Christ. By the way, that means repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's our message. And every one of us should understand it. Even if someone walks in and doesn't believe it and still doesn't believe it when they walk out, they know what was said. They understand clearly. And this is shown so clearly in what John says plainly. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I like what J.C. Ryle says about John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke plainly about the dreadful danger of the impenitent and unbelieving. He told his hearers that there was a wrath to come. He preached of an unquenchable fire in which the chaff 
would someday be burned. He was clear that is what's at stake for all the other things we could talk about. And the Bible addresses so many practical things. you got to know that. And we have to be clear about that to the people of God and to all the people as we have opportunity to profess this message. The message of repentance. It's so lost today, I fear. Repentance is a command to change what you're doing. It's a message saying that what you're doing is wrong. Now, I know when the message of repentance is given that only the Holy Spirit can work it in you, but it has to be said. That's God's normal way. Hey, we have this problem, everybody. It's sin. We've got to, it's going to send us to hell. I've got to say that. And so what do you do? Well, I'll, if, if it grips you, that's God giving you repentance to say, yes, it's true, and I want to turn from this, and where do I turn? I turn to Christ. I don't turn to more good works. I can't. That's what I've got to repent of. Uh, This message of repentance is so simple, but because it brings up sin and it confronts people with sin, I think maybe that's why people steer away from it. But really, that's what we've got to give. John knows this from the front level. Turn away from your sins. Turn to Christ. Confess your sins to God. Seek their forgiveness by his grace and his redemption in Christ. That's what is meant by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ, the Messiah, is here. And this is the beginning of his judgment Yes, he'll fulfill salvation, but now the winnowing will also occur. And furthermore, to the leaders, he really intensified this message there. Made it clear to them, who should have known better. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Prove by your outward actions that you have repented and turned to Christ. And by the way, don't presume, don't presume to say to yourselves, hey, we're Jewish, we're okay. See, delivering God's word plainly really is not that hard. It becomes hard mostly when the preacher doesn't trust it himself. Then he has to spend all sorts of unnecessary energy trying to explain it away. Not trusting God's word makes preachers unclear and often tossers of word salad. Give it straight, give it plain. That's how John exemplifies it. Know the sins of the times. Plainly display where God's word addresses and corrects those sins. The message of repentance is clear and pervasive. It's most interesting to me in Matthew's gospel, the very first words of John the Baptist recorded in his public ministry, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in chapter 4, the very first words of Jesus' public ministry, wait for it, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Also, I also want you to see something about John's preaching approach, we see that the preacher must be bold and confrontational when necessary. Occasions rise to be brave and bold and confrontational for sure in all ministries. Now, most often when John's addressing this, he's talking to those who are religious leaders. He does speak to civil leaders too, so the church has a prophetic voice in that way. But his most intense focus is towards people who think they're right with God in some other way than the gospel. That's really what gets the prophet's blood boiling, and it does so for John too. And you have to be bold to confront this because self-righteousness dies very hard among people, especially among leaders who think they know so much. John saves his most heated confrontation for such leaders. That's what he does in verse 7. He saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he called them snakes. Snakes. Sneaky, deceitful, that's what they are. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Those who thought themselves legally righteous. He boldly confronts this. And 
This must be part of the preacher's role to confront especially that particular thing. Bold to confront anything that's opposed to the Word of God. But most dangerous to us is this error of thinking we're right with God by some other means than Christ. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because if you think it's just because you're Jewish is what he's about to say. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need this nation. He can make rocks cry out and be the children of Abraham. The axe has come. It's going to start hacking away. If there's not real fruit, if it's not genuine faith, it will be gone no matter what nation you're part of. Presumption about salvation is an error that has to be boldly confronted head on. And he went right for the religious elites. But it's good for pastors too to ask themselves the question. Richard Baxter would often say, preach the gospel to yourself to make sure you're converted. He'd say that to pastors talking to themselves. But pastors also should talk to their people and say, we should not think um, just because your parents are Christians that you're a Christian, that you've repented. Or just because you, you pray once a day that you're a Christian or that you prayed once to receive Jesus and now you're a Christian uh, because you give your tithes or you're baptized, you're a good person. Uh, faithful preaching will work to shake false assurance by calling it out. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That simple message is whatever I've been resting in, I need to repent of my sin and turn to Christ. It's not faithful to God or loving towards people to be shy about declaring the truth. And sometimes You have to yell at a person who's sleeping because the house is burning. Finally, I want you to see what typifies John's preaching that is timeless. He is a picture of how the preacher must be Christ-centered. Christ is the gospel himself and the substance of the message. This must be the thrust of every message spoken or preached or taught by a preacher or a teacher. He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me, he's mightier than me. The thing I'm doing here is to draw you to him. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. What he's going to bring is the real thing. I want you to draw your gaze upon Christ. That's what the faithful preacher does. He is Christ-centered. John was careful to make Christ clear. You could see that so vividly here. Christ was John's purpose. He purposely showed himself to be far inferior to Christ. He was glad to represent it this way. Hey, follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. John was baptizing with a symbolic water baptism that had meaning, no doubt, but Jesus was baptizing with the substance of the Holy Spirit himself. J.C. Ryle once again said, the coming one was the king. He himself He himself, John, could only baptize them with water. The coming one could baptize them with the Holy Spirit, take away sins, and would one day judge the world. In the Gospel of John, this same episode, a little more color is given to to the story. John, the Gospel writer, says, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Christ-centered. It's every, behold, look to him. This is of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. The central message of the whole Bible is the person of Jesus Christ. All biblical roads lead to the person and the work of Christ. All preaching, therefore, should be Christ-centered. It's what Paul says about 
in summary of his ministry, his apostolic ministry. Right into the Colossians, Paul says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toiled, what? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What? To see everyone mature in Christ. So, finally, as we look at this ministry of John the Baptist, some chapters from now, the Lord Jesus is going to speak about what he thought about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was arrested. He was told about this. And he has a little diatribe in which he talks about John the Baptist and his ministry. And Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says that. Greater than Noah? Greater than Abraham? Greater than Moses? Jesus says, of those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And we see what was important to John. That, what is greatness? I mean, what preacher wouldn't want to be called great? But Jesus is the one who defines greatness. You know, there was a time later in Jesus' ministry, he was walking along the road, and James and John, two of his closest disciples, they were with him. And their mother was with him too. Their mother was watching things unfold and seeing Jesus' popularity rise. That was before it went down. But it was coming, kind of coming to a crescendo. And they were starting to think around him, hey, maybe he's going to be made the actual king here soon, the actual earthly king, to take over uh, the, the authority of Israel and overtake Rome. And it's going to be amazing when he does this. So she nudges her way in to Jesus and says, hey, it would be tremendous if when you take your throne, you would place my son James on your right and my son John on your left. They would be great. Jesus does not speak to her directly. I'm sure she's there. He turns to the sons. First of all, why do you have your mother coming and doing this? I'm sure. But come here. James and John. And it says in Matthew 20, Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord that authority over their subjects. Their great ones exercise authority over them. That's what they do. That's what's great in the kingdom of man. But it shall not be so among you, James and John. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus calls John the Baptist great. In a day where so much of the preaching is impotent, John the Baptist provides a timeless model for preachers to emulate and for the people of God to gain confidence with. Let's pray. Father, the message of repentance is truly timeless. If we have become complacent in any way, please use what we have just read and heard to convict us and work repentance from sin in us. To the degree that we have started to trust in anything or anyone besides Jesus and his righteousness for eternal life, please jar us from such a deathly state and Lord, while we are not all called to be preachers, every one of these traits 
manifested by John are informative and helpful for all the people of God, that we may be faithful ambassadors for you and your message. Give us courage and faithfulness to represent Jesus and his message boldly and accurately for the advancement of your glorious kingdom. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together respond by turning in our hymnals to number 301. 301 is join all the glorious names. Let's stand and sing the first three verses as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table. <laughs> 